We're kicking off this week with another student spotlight. Taylor Williams is our first marine scientist. My name is Taylor Williams, and I'm a first-year master's student at the College of Charleston in Dr. Heather Spaulding's lab. I'm interested in understanding the sexual phenology and population connectivity of a newly discovered mat-forming invasive alga at Pearl and Hermes Reef in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, a remote and pristine marine national monument northwest of the main Hawaiian Islands. This research will expand our understanding of invasion biology and help to shed light on a newly discovered invasive alga that is desiccating a notably pristine reef on the scale of hundreds of meters squared in an area that otherwise has no recorded algal invasions. This research has important implications on the overall health of this marine national monument because it will help to inform management decisions moving forward. It's also been interesting conducting this research because the invasive alga in the spotlight hasn't been heavily studied meaning any information acquired along the way is likely new to science and new to me. Thank you so much for sending that in. If you're a student who wants to talk about your research on big biology, send us an email with a one-minute voice memo to info at bigbiology.org. Now here's the show. In one of our first episodes, we talked to Massimo Piliucci about flaws he perceived in the modern evolutionary synthesis. The modern synthesis is a powerful and durable theory that combined Darwinian ideas about natural selection with Mendel's ideas about inheritance. People started making sort of grumbling noises about the fact that the modern synthesis wasn't wrong as much as it was a little too limited. We've returned to this theme in multiple episodes since. A few months ago, we talked to Francis Champagne about the inheritance of epigenetic marks. The whole framework of modern synthesis is on the stability, not a plasticity model. We also talked to Dennis Noble about randomness in evolution and to Mihaila Pavlichev about the commonness and importance of two forms of genetic complexity called epistasis and pleiotropy. On this episode, we continue to examine potential cracks in the modern synthesis. This time in a conversation with the biologist Scott Turner, an emeritus professor of biology from SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. In 2017, Scott published Purpose and Desire, a book that focuses on the role of homeostasis and evolution. In the book, Scott uses the ideas of cognition and intentionality to describe how organisms sense and act on both their own internal states and their surrounding environments. By their actions, organisms achieve homeostasis internally, but also modify their external environments. We spend a lot of time in our conversation on this uncomfortable idea of intentionality. Terms like intentionality and agency are uncomfortable to many because they come with lots of historical and philosophical baggage. Ever since Aristotle, various thinkers have invoked concepts like vitalism, phlogiston, and entelechy to describe an invisible force that animates living things. Most of these ideas have rightfully been discarded as illogical, untestable, or religiously motivated. However, when considered from the perspective of homeostasis, agency can make sense. One of Scott's key ideas is that organisms must export entropy into the environment if they're to maintain the internal stability that defines life. And agency is a key part of how organisms do that. Well, intentionality is one of these uncomfortable subjects that causes a lot of uh, heartburn for people. So what actually is it that we mean by intentionality? You know, is there a way to frame that in, in a manner that uh, avoids some of the mystical traps? And it's a legitimate question to ask, you know, are you just invoking spooks here or, or ghosts in the machine or, or, or things like this? And so 
um, one of the things that I think has to be done if we're going to be asking these fundamental questions is to have have a sound conception of what intentionality is, and it's tied into cognition very intimately. To me, the simplest definition is is coupling modification of the environment with the cognitive interpretation of the environment. Scott's book has generated both praise and outrage. In an essay in the Quarterly Review of Biology, the chemist and origin of life researcher Addie Pross praised the book as thought-provoking. Others have simply been provoked by Scott's ideas. The evolutionary biologist Jerry Coyne, for example, eviscerated the book on his blog, claiming that it represents a veiled attempt to sneak God back into biology. Now, to be clear, we're not creationists, and we invited Jerry onto the podcast to talk about his perspective, but in an email, he told us he thinks the book is, quote, garbage. We would urge you to listen and judge for yourself. You'll hear in various parts of the conversation that Marty and I had big problems with some of Scott's positions, and especially with the last section of the book, which hints at sympathy for intelligent design. We nevertheless learned a lot from the conversation, and we think that Scott's ideas will contribute substantially to progress in biology. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. This is Big Biology. Well, let's let's talk about uh, science now, and we want to frame this around your your book, Purpose and Desire. Um, and one one of the sort of major overarching ideas in in that book is that uh, you think that standard evolutionary theory uh, has some problems. It's it's either incorrect or that it lacks certain elements. And and you suggest a number of things that can sort of fill that void, and among them things like uh, niche construction theory, extended organism, homeostasis, and we'll, we'll sort of get, get to all of those things during our conversation. But, but let's just start off talking about standard evolutionary theory. So, so why do you think um, it's incorrect? And maybe start by just saying, what, what is it? Like, what, what is your conception of, of the standard theory? The standard theory to me stems from the uh, from the new synthesis, you know, which of course was that reconciliation of uh, of population genetics with Mendelian genetics that was that was the the brainchild of Fisher, Haldane, and Wright, and and this notion of gene selectionism has been a crucial part of the whole um, efflorescence of standard evolutionary theory. So when you t- speak to uh, you know people who identify themselves as 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 Darwinists, it almost always comes down to the selection of genes. There's some kind of there's some kind of fundamental um, genetic driver to all this, you know. And of course, that's the reason for that is that the gene is considered to be the primary uh, carrier of the hereditary of the heredity of past good function, uh, adaptive function, and you know that was. Fine, and it was coherent, and I think I've mentioned this in some of my papers that 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 this was actually uh, for the time a, a fully coherent theory of of Darwinism. Uh, uh, but it has uh, in 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 the rise of this coherent theory of Darwinism, uh, certain things seem to have been I I think left in the wake, and uh, among them. Uh, um, a good coherent theory of adaptation, and and I think that's important because 
you know, when you get down to how living things actually work, you know, adaptation is a pretty significant part of how they actually make it through their lives and how they reproduce. But uh, adaptation mm-hmm. is 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 kind of a problematic uh, area when you are looking at it in terms of the standard evolutionary theory, and 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 I think that's one of the things that's that's missing from but SET standard evolutionary mm-hmm. theory. Uh, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, it, the, mm-hmm. the 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 conception of adaptation is gene based, and I think there's so much more to it than that. Also, you know, as we come to learn more and more about uh, about how genes work, uh, you know, the the whole notion of the gene as a specifier of apt function is starting to fall by the way. The conceptions of hereditary memory that we have are now broadening considerably, and uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot of this broadening has been due to the challenge to SET from uh, niche construction theory, for example. And and mm-hmm. so, and so we seem to be getting into a much broader, more nuanced uh, picture of the relation between genes and function, between function and adaptation, and, uh, you know, grounding adaptation in a gene-centered uh, conception of natural selection, I think, is, yeah, is yeah. severely limiting. So, so you say in several places uh, you're taking adaptation to task in the book, and you say adaptation sits on a shaky foundation. Um, so what, what's wrong with our current ideas about adaptation? Uh, well, uh, one of the problems, I think, is that is that we have no real independent way of 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 uh, conceiving as an a- of an apt function gene, if you will, except by the criterion that it's selected, and 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 so uh, that's one problem uh, with it. But also, when you start looking at 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 the actual mechanics of adaptation, which is my my wheelhouse, uh, you, you know, you. you you start uh, having to deal with certain concepts that are actually um, uh, quite uh, um, uncomfortable for, for uh, you know, people who are steeped in the kind of mechanistic uh, gene-based uh, conception of adaptation. You know, it's it's a uh, it's a it's a common experience. You know, maybe you've uh, maybe you've had this uh, experience when you talk about uncomfortable concepts with, uh, with 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 many people. You know, you start talking about things like, well, you know. Um, you know, there's a purposeful aspect towards adaptation that uh, that uh, you know really is essential to an understanding of adaptation. And then you know the eyes start to kind of uh, you know go <laughs> off to the side, or or people try to change the subject, or things like this. So so you know you're you're when you think about how adaptation actually works, you have to start dealing with certain uncomfortable concepts in the framework of standard evolutionary theory, which, which uh, uh, presents itself as a fully scientific uh, uh, picture of how evolution works. And, and bringing in concepts like intentionality and purposefulness and things like this, which I think you must do if you're going to have a sound concept of the phenomenon of adaptation, uh, that starts to, you know, as I say, make people uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that to me is, is an area that there, therefore we need to kind of explore to get to the, get to, uh, uh, I, I think, a fully coherent theory of what we're talking about. So you cast it a second ago, you cast adaptation in this sort of traditional context. I'm going to use your words from the book, mm-hmm. um, that we're talking about statistical adjustments of genetic variation and, and aptitude. Yes. So uh, you had a nice nice image in another paper, um, I guess in 2016, that you wrote that we'll also talk about. Um, 
showing the traditional sort of there's an environmental filter and those with a particular adaptation move through and everything else doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the way that you cast it about, I think we're all on board that something like that happens, but what produces the shapes of those, those balls that do and don't go through the filter right. is where the, is where the, the contention maybe rests. Yeah. 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 So the, yeah. so the image you're talking about is basically the mesh work and the f balls falling through and the ones that, uh, that are apt, so to speak, uh, they actually f go through the filter and that's the next generation that can re reproduce, you know, that, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a standard uh, uh, metaphor for how uh, selection for apt genes works. And then, of course, niche construction theory introduces this new uh, uh, wrinkle, which is actually kind of the Baldwin effect uh, that's been uh, that's been sort of recast in the language of niche construction theory. That those things mm -hmm. they, they 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 have a choice. They have. Uh, some ability to modify their selective environment, and and and, and this ability to modify the selected selective environment uh, uh, is 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 a little bit of a tricky one for standard evolutionary theory. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think Darwin himself would have had any issue with that. I mean, you know, of course, right. he was a fully you know, you know, one of the great naturalists of all time, and it was fully steeped in just how living things work and some of the amazing, uh, remarkable things that they do to be able to survive and these kind of things. But I think that dimension of Darwin's thinking has been a little bit lost in, in our, uh, in our push to, to make um, evolution uh, a kind of a physics-like uh, science. Let's try to first incorporate niche construction theory um, as a pathway to this sort of concept of extended organisms and the role of homeostasis and, and where the, the, the meat on the bone really lies. Um, niche construction theory, you just cast it as a sort of process by which the organisms are modifying the, the filter in a sense. Um, so, so that would be one way to think about it. But to transition from there into the role of homeostasis, can you say something about the role of entropy? in sort of how these this sort of motiv motivation to use a very strong word comes about so when you talk about entropy of course you're talking about the the uh, uh, what life is actually fighting against uh, all the time to be able to to persist and and uh, uh, and when you talk about the ability to persist you have to start getting into uh, issues of homeostasis and how uh, organisms actually do modify their environments to be uh, to be able to persist, and um, organisms resist entropy basically by doing work continually to mobilize a stream of matter and energy to create a specified order, which of course is the organism or any of its parts. And, and of course, when that work is not done anymore, then of course the, or, the, uh, the, 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 the drive towards entropy is unchallenged and of course we all know what happens next. So, so that's an aspect uh, of it. Now, when you talk about 
um, being able to manage that flow of matter and energy, you have to delve into what's actually doing that managing. And, and this is where the concept of uh, adaptive barriers uh, starts to come in. So if you look at the just the organism, for example, you know, the organism, we perceive of it as something, you know, distinct from the environment in which it sits. Um, and uh, uh, of course, the organism persists, which is a form of homeostasis. And we can get into some of the philosophical issues around surrounding homeostasis uh, later on in the conversation. But the very persistence of an organism's form is itself a form of homeostasis. And that, of course, is maintained by this enormous complex of adaptive barriers uh, that separates us from the environment, the, the uh, linings of the lung, uh, the linings of the intestine, uh, the sensory uh, interfaces, and those kinds of things, uh, all of which are mediated by epithelium-like uh, like structures. And, and and uh, you can take some fairly um, simple um, aspects of, uh, of, uh, of conservation of mass and thermodynamics to, to be able to um, uh, uh, extend adaptive boundaries outward from the organism. So, 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 so we consist of a set of adaptive boundaries uh, contained within us ourselves as another set of adaptive boundaries that you know, separate different organ systems from one another and so forth. But there's no physical or theoretical barrier to extending that, those adaptive boundaries outward. And, and uh, you know, speaking of getting into the weeds, that was one of the, <laughs> one of the, 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 the things about the work with, uh, with uh, um, social insects colonies and and uh, and termites that, that that impressed upon me the ability of of organisms to actually extend the adaptive boundary outwards and and uh, in the case of the termites, of course, they build these, these are the uh, African termites that build these massive mounds uh, uh, as uh, infrastructure for their subterranean colonies. Uh, what these mounds are is they are a big, massive adaptive boundary that has been constructed between the termites themselves and the environment, which they are, of course, totally unsuited to be living in on their own. And, and, and those sort and, of cells building an epithelium out of, out of earth, right? Out of mud. That's right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so uh, uh, that work impressed upon me the ability of organisms to be able to extend uh, these adaptive boundaries outward. And the, uh, the more I studied uh, them, the more I came away uh, impressed with just how extensive this reach was, you know. So it extends not only to managing the, uh, the uh, atmospheric composition within the nest, but it also uh, 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 co-ops uh, uh, the physical environment, the entire hydrology of the environment over a fairly extensive uh, range to be able to uh, enable termites to live uh, in a dry environment, but because they reconstruct their environment to manage uh, water flow through it, uh, they can survive in those kinds of environments. So, so this is a natural tie-in to the whole niche construction idea. And, uh, and what's, what's driving this uh, ability of termites to do this, and now this is the physiologist in me coming out, is, 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 is the ability to manage flows of water 
uh, heat, um, uh, respiratory gases, all those kinds of things in a way that maintains and sustains and enables an environment uh, within the colony to persist uh, over time. And, and in, in, a, in a word, uh, homeostasis, but homeostasis extended beyond the bounds of the organism itself. Yeah. Right. And to circle back to the concept of entropy, I mean, in a sense, your words, I think, have been that the entropy is exported out into the environment farther and farther away across these different levels, whether it's at the organismal level or superorganismal in the case of termite mounds. Yeah, yeah. Just making sure I've got that correct. Yeah, yeah you know, the, 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 the standard textbook uh, um, reconciliation, uh, if you will, of, of, of life uh, with uh, the second law of thermodynamics that you see in almost all, uh, you know, freshman biology textbooks is that is that life only exists because it exports uh, randomness to the environment and 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 you know that's true that's the second law of thermodynamics but <laughs> but I think what uh, what is missed in that is is the extent to which that 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 disorderliness can be pushed uh, uh, away from from the uh, from the organism itself and so you know if you if you uh, take uh, uh, the Gaia theory seriously, for example, and it's something that makes perfect sense to me as a physiologist. Uh, you know, the the, the 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 disorder is actually exported outside the biosphere. In other words, the biosphere is this massive uh, uh, system that's that's uh, that's actually regulated by life. And and uh, you know, as I say. To me, as a physiologist, that makes absolute perfect sense to me. And so, and so, rather than thinking of life as a fundamentally disordering process from the perspective of the biosphere, it's actually a fundamentally ordering process. You know, it makes it makes the uh, living environment an orderly, uh, orderly place. And uh, and but of course, it does so by you know extending the boundary between uh, between randomness and disorder and orderliness basically to the boundaries of the biosphere. Hmm. Awesome. Let, let's zero in now on homeostasis itself. Um, so we, we keep tossing this around, but let's just, just sort of define that carefully and maybe you could give a couple of examples of, of what homeostasis is. Okay, so homeostasis is one of these concepts that everyone you know has an idea of, of what it is and, and, uh, and, and, and so forth. And the standard, of course, definition that you see in physiology textbooks, of course, is that uh, it's a mechanism that produces that produces some kind of a regulation. And, and of course, a common example for that is the thermostat for your house, as well as the supposed thermostat that regulates, say, body temperature in an animal, for example. Now, that's certainly true. Uh, there's lots of fascinating mechanisms that go into that. Uh, but if you delve back into the history of the concept of homeostasis, of course, it's attributed to Claude Bernard, uh, the you know 19th century uh, contemporary of, of uh, Charles Darwin, and basically the founder of modern physiology. And 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 this concept of homeostasis is really attributable to him, and it's usually attributable to a particular. Uh, aphorism that's quoted uh, uh, by everyone. Of course, it's, this is the you know, constant, the steadiness of the internal environment is a prerequisite for the continuation of life. Now, uh, in modern times, of course, we tend to take a very mechanistic uh, picture of what homeostasis is. You know, what I 
what I call uh, the clockwork homeostasis. You know, we, we have these mechanisms that produce a, say, a regulated temperature or uh, a regulated salt balance or regulated uh, blood oxygen level or these kinds of things. And, and uh, you know, not to take anything away from that, there are fascinating mechanisms there. But if you look back into the history of the concept of homeostasis, you find that it's a, it's a very different conception, you know, and, and, uh, and here, um, uh, a little bit of, uh, of a digression into the history of philosophical history of biology might be worthwhile. You know, we, modern biology has, has, uh, has, uh, uh built a, uh, a kind of, um, mechanistic ethos into the way we think you know we 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 tend to think naturally about mechanism uh materialism it's our job as scientists to be able to ferret those out and to uh, uh, understand them and to clarify them all good things but if you look at the origins of this idea you find it's actually a very vitalist idea you know we we, uh, we, we talk about Claude Bernard as the founder of experimental medicine, which he was, no doubt about it. But his motivations were actually steeped in a philosophical tradition about biology at the time, which was vitalist in origin, you know, that life only comes from life. Uh, now, it's a very different kind of vitalism than the kind of vitalism that we tend to talk about uh, these days, you know, you know which is uh, we tend to caricature the vitalist idea as, uh, you know, there's somehow vital spirits or vital essences or, or ghosts in the machine or, 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 or these kinds of things. But uh, that's a very different form of vitalism uh, that, than the one that arose in the 19th century when people like Pasteur or Bernard were, were practicing, you know, uh, 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 for in, in, in large part, uh, the, the, uh, the, the philosophy of biology, if you will, had set aside uh, this notion of vital spirits. It was clear that no one was ever going to find them and that uh, it wasn't a scientifically or intellectually sustainable idea. The focus then shifted to what was called uh, process vitalism and a fairly um, uh, broader uh, definition of vitalism, uh, you know, what some people have called vitalism light, that, 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 that just the acknowledgement that life is something that's fundamentally distinctive from the physical world. And, and, uh, and process vitalism was the uh, solution that uh, people like Pasteur and Bernard uh, uh, brought to that. And, and it's actually a fairly innocuous idea, you know, it's just saying that, uh, that uh, you know, homeostasis, for example, this is Bernard uh, speaking now, is the property that distinguishes life from non-life. And mechanism has a role in that. And this is why Bernard is a founder of, of experimental medicine. He was a superb experimentalist and, and uh, you know, very uh, attuned to the uh, biochemical uh, mechanisms that were involved. But, 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 but to him, these were subservient to this notion of homeostasis as being the distinguishing feature of life. And, and mm -hmm. if you look at the language of Bernard's aphorism, you see very clearly that that he regards home, uh, he regards the mechanism uh, as 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 following from 
the antecedent of homeostasis. So it's not the mechanism that produces homeostasis. It's homeostasis that actually produces the mechanism. And that's a, <laughs> that's kind of a profound idea, you know. It takes a lot, yeah, yeah. lot, lot of effort to get your head uh, around that. But, mm-hmm. you know, the more you delve into the mechanisms of... Um, of how homeostasis works, uh, uh, you start to be impressed. At least I start to be impressed that that it's really this 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 the, this homeostasis, this persistence of the of the living world that's actually driving the mechanisms rather than the other way around. Yeah, I just want to uh, see if I can articulate a point here. So um, I I agree fully with your assessment of the importance of, of homeostasis. And, you know, I, I myself am very excited about homeostasis as an idea. And, and I understand the links to these older ideas about, about vitalism. Um, but, but I guess, you know, the, the sort of idea of linking it to vitalism introduces a kind of, you know, mysticism or, you know, intentionality that I think we'll get to a, a little bit later I don't. I don't strictly see that as as being necessary, right? So, so why not characterize homeostasis as that's what organisms do in order to respond plastically and flexibly to the, you know changes in their local environments and to maintain an internal milieu that's suitable for all the rest of the information and energy and matter processing that they have to do, and that is the product of natural selection. You know, why why invoke vitalism here? Well, uh, I think it's essential because we're really talking about whether we think life is something distinctive. And uh, if it's distinctive, then what is it that makes it distinctive? And, and you know, you, you, you have illustrated uh, for me, Art, the, 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 the discomfort that arises from, from uh, grappling with the, with the uh, philosophical foundations of what vitalism actually tells us and furthermore what homeostasis actually tells us and i don't want to take anything away from the validity of trying to work out the mechanisms of homeostasis i mean there's 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 enormous uh, potential for understanding in there there's enormous potential for being able to uh, use these ideas to you know uh, uh, understand the process, understand uh, ways to make it better in the case of developing treatments or pharmaceuticals or those kinds of things. So that's absolutely an essential part of it. But, you know, you, 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 you have to eventually come to the point of, of, of asking yourself, what is it that's driving what? And when you talk about the mechanisms of homeostasis, you know, you know as well as anyone, some of the as anyone does, what the incredible complexity of those mechanisms is. And, and, and is it just that those mechanisms are being specified by genes? Is that it? And, and you know, I've come to the well, conclusion I, from understanding the mechanism, yeah. from delving into the mechanisms of it, that, uh, you, you know, maybe there's something else that's actually the more important driver. Yeah. But, but I guess let me be clear that I, I don't think that, my point is that we just need to understand mechanism. And in fact, in fact, Marty and I have spent uh, a lot of time on the podcast sort of um, grappling with this idea of genes as, as determinants of, of traits. And, and we're sort of fully on board with the idea that, 
you know, phenotypes are these very complex interactions between genes and environments and developmental contexts and, you know, all, all the sort of normal things that, that, we, that we talk about. Um, and, and I would say, you know, to me, the, the magic of homeostasis is that it's this really emergent complex process that comes out of these, you know, these underlying mechanisms that we can study and understand, but that it, it supersedes those. But to me, that doesn't, that doesn't lead to this idea of vitalism. It, it, it leads to an idea that, you know, biological systems are these incredibly complex things with emergent phenotypes that really matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, um, let me just put the challenge back in your court then, you know, what, what's, what's, what's an emergent property? Tell me what an emergent property is, and then you start. I, I, I will argue that you start getting into some of the, some of the kind of quasi. Uh, um, I think you use the word mystical, kind of quasi mystical conceptions of 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 what's happening, and and mm -hmm. and you know I, I, I'm not saying that anyone is right or anyone is wrong. You know I I I've come to the point where, where I think some radical questions have to be posed to modern biology and 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 you know um, I'm not saying I have any answers I have some proposals but I think that we're coming to the point where we can start sharpening our questions and I think you've just uh, you know sharpened the question very well you know I happen mm -hmm. to see that homeostasis is the starting point for the emergence of all these wonderful complex uh, uh, types of things and your perspective is coming from the other side i'm fully yeah, on board yeah, with that but yeah. I think... and, I, and i see that this idea of emergence is almost like a, a kind of scientific way of invoking mysticism right yes. but but i think i, I think it's, it's <laughs> right. also sort of a there's a mechanistic way to think about emergence right which is absolutely you know, prop properties of the bulk system that can't yeah. be readily predicted from the underlying parts absolutely Maybe to give an example, Scott, of homeostasis, uh, and you use the example of temperature regulation, I thought in the book, the juxtaposition of ectotherms and endotherms is a really useful way, although they're not necessarily incompatible, it's just a, a fairly simple way to re represent where you're coming from with respect to this homeostasis, maybe driving mechanism. Do you want to want to talk through that? And then we can get to cognition and intentionality and some of these other more complicated things. Okay. So there's a whole uh, chapter in Purpose and Desire about this whole issue of the clockwork homeostasis. And uh, one of the first uh, applications of this idea, of course, was in temperature regulation. And, uh, you know, your, your uh, listeners who are, are attuned to this will, will be fully familiar with this. You know, there's, a, there's uh, the discovery of a thermostat in the anterior hypothalamus of the brain. Uh, there are various kinds of regulatory mechanisms various kinds of feedbacks in there. And if you look at, at where that whole field has, 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 uh, has gone, you know, it's a very, very intricate mechanistic approach to thermoregulation. Now, of course, uh, that work was done on mostly mammals and birds, mostly uh, endotherms who generate quite a bit of heat to be able to maintain their their body temperature. And so there's a fairly sophisticated mechanism of heat generation and heat flows within the body that are, are supposedly controlled by this, by this uh, thermostat, by this clockwork homeostasis, so to speak. Now, of course, if you come to other animals, uh, 
and 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 this is actually how I got my professional start. I worked on on temperature regulation of uh, ectotherms, specifically lizards, and uh, of all things, uh, alligators. Towards the end of my PhD <laughs> uh, career, but uh, you know the 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 uh, important discovery that came out of uh, you know the work of naturalists in the 1960s, uh, uh, even back to the 1950s, was that uh, uh, you know lizards and creatures like this are not cold-blooded. They are more precisely ectothermic. They are very good regulators of their body temperature. Uh, uh, in many instances, uh, especially desert uh, lizards, they regulate very high and steady body temperatures. And, and, uh, and of course, they do so by managing the flows of heat between uh, the environment and themselves. So the lizards will bask on the rocks in the sun in the morning, and then they'll shuttle back and forth between sunny aspect between sunny parts of their environment and shady parts of the environment and so forth. <laughs> now, uh, of course, taking a leaf from the work on thermoregulation in, in, uh, in endotherms, for example, uh, uh, some biologists in the 1970s began to look into the mechanistic thermostat of behavioral regulators. And of course, a great uh, deal of fascinating work came from that. Uh, the most fascinating uh, for me was that lizards could actually have fevers, you know, just like uh, just like we do. And, and of course, they they had fevers in a very different way. They would seek out warmer environments and and so forth to elevate their fever. Very fascinating work. Then along comes uh, 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 ecologists like Ray Huey, for example, who did some fascinating work on on uh, on behavioral thermoregulation in animals and in uh, the uh, islands of the Caribbean. And he found he and his colleagues uh, uh, found a what I think was an absolutely fascinating uh, uh, result, which is that the temperature to which an, an anolis lizard would regulate uh, its body temperature, for example, was very dependent upon the climate of risk that these uh, creatures uh, faced. And so, if you uh, if you had a lizard that was in um, say uh, an environment with a uh, fairly dense canopy, so that there were only uh, you know small flecks of sunlight where an animal could raise its body temperature, those body those regulated body temperatures were lower, and uh, that compared to uh, lizards in an environment where uh, the risk of predation was was less, and so. What's the implication of that? You know, mm -hmm, what's mm -hmm. what's what's happening is that is that the regulation of the body temperature in those lizards is not so much the operation of a clockwork homeostasis. You can certainly build a case that it is, but really at the root of it, this is a cognitive phenomenon. Those lizards are looking around at their environment. They are. They're making a judgment, and I use that word in scare quotes. You won't be able to see it <laughs> see it on on, on on your podcast, but uh, you know th th this is a cognitive judgment, and and so you know what does that say about the clockwork homeostasis? It 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 says to me that there is a fundamental cognitive dimension to this uh, idea that simply cannot be ignored, and uh, and so you know that's that's where I think the the clockwork homeostasis idea falls a bit short. Again, not to take away from the fascinating work that was done, has been done on, on just how the uh, homeostasis of lizard 
thermoregulatory systems works. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating work, but it does lead to maybe a, a different conclusion about, uh, about just what homeostasis is. I think that's a perfect segue into talking more broadly about your ideas uh, on cognition. Um, and so in the, in the book, you talk about organisms having a cognition about what's going on around them. And, and I think by that, you don't mean that they're, they're necessarily conscious of, of their local environments. And so a bacterium, for example, could have cognition about its local environment. And, and what you mean by that, what, what I gathered is that, that there's an imprint of the external environment on their internal processes that they, they can respond to. So, so why, why do we need this idea of, of cognition and why isn't it enough just to say, you know, in the same way that organisms are extended into the environment, the environments, of course, are extended and transduced into the internal spaces of the organism and, you know, the design of that transduction and the particular kinds of information that come in are organisms' ways of sensing and responding to their world. Well, I'm very pleased that you drew a bright line between consciousness and cognition. And that's one of the main main points that, that, I, I, that I've tried to make uh, in, in my writings about this. You know, uh, uh, yeah. consciousness is, it, it, it right. so easily creeps that's into our discussions. That's why we have to use square, scare yes. quotes, right? Scare quotes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so easily creeps into our discussions and it just muddles everything. And so, and so the way you describe cognition is 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 spot on you know the, that there's there, there are means for sensing the environment there are means for uh, uh, bringing about a change in in uh, in the internal physiology of an organism at whatever scale we're talking about and and so yes that's what that's what cognition is when you start Building in, of course, uh, the other part of it, which is that these cognitive engines, as 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 I call them, are are connected to machines. I'm using that dread word. They're machines that can actually go out and modify the environment. Then homeo then this notion of homeostasis starts to come in because what is driving the particular modification of the environment that's going to be that's going to be uh, manipulating the flows of matter and energy through that organism again that whatever scale we're talking about and and so you know when you're when you're talking about again what's governing that is it the mechanisms that are governing it which will then feedback and select on particular genes and so forth maybe but the other aspect of it is that, is that this is driven by this uh, fundamental property of whatever organism we have to persist through time and that's the broad definition of homeostasis that I well a broad definition of the outcome of homeostasis that I that I uh, develop in the book you know homeostasis, at its broadest, most expansive definition is the persistence of a living system through time, despite whatever is happening in the outside environment. So, so there are these feedbacks in there and uh, all this kind of stuff. And again, we come back to the question of what's driving what, you know, is it, uh, is it the mechanisms that are producing the homeostasis? Yeah, it's, that's probably in there, you know, it's probably an important part of it. But, but, but what's, uh, what's 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 really driving it through time, and and this is where the whole connection to a vitalist uh, philosophy comes in. You know, if you regard homeostasis as the fundamental uh, property of living systems, uh, 
then it's homeostasis that's driving it. It's this, it's this drive or this striving towards uh, doing whatever it has to do to persist uh, is, is going to be what's driving it. And, and, you know, it's a different philosophical approach to it, different philosophical dimensions, but I think we're to the point right now in biology uh, where those kinds, of, uh, those kinds of questions need to be asked. Hmm. Um, do you, are you aware, Scott, of, of any empirical tests of this idea that cognition works in the way that you're portraying it? I mean, your, your sort of broad definition of cognition. Um, any empirical tests? Uh, I, I can't point to any. I can point to particular examples of, of, of uh, where I think homeostasis per se is driving these things. And of course, uh, uh, the, the prime example that I use is the way that uh, social insects uh, mobilize to, to, um, to provide a regulated environment uh, for themselves, you know, this extended organism idea. And uh, I, the, the, the first book that I wrote, uh, uh, you know, The Extended Organism uh, delves into many examples of, 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 of how that works. Uh, uh, the, 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 the second book that I wrote, uh, which was uh, sort of a prequel to the book Purpose and Desire, uh, uh, delved into many other examples of, of how homeostasis provides an explanatory uh, framework for, for understanding design, for example. And so uh, as an example, if you look at, uh, if you look at uh, uh, what goes into the apparent design of bones, for example, you know, bones in many ways have uh, aspects to them as if a mechanical engineer had had built them. Of course, no mechanical engineer did. Uh, uh, and uh, of course, there are many uh, uh, areas where the the structure of bones departs from optimal design. You know, that's one reason why we have bones break and things like that. Uh, uh, but what's at the heart of that, of course, is is uh, is a, an interaction between different cell types that are continually remodeling bone and and of course what's directing that uh, what seems to be directing it is 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 a cognitive function where these cells actually monitor uh, uh, mechanical strain within the bones and then modify the bone structure to bring that into a certain you know range of acceptable strains and uh, you know when you look at uh, you know structure of uh, vascular networks or or there's some there's some particularly interesting work that's being that's been done uh, by John Torday, for example, in the uh, in the design of bronchial networks. Uh, you know uh, that seems to be driven primarily by a sensation of local cells of what the local oxygen concentrations are, for example, and and uh, and lungs will be continually remodeled again around this maintenance of a particular uh, oxygen tension around. The cells of the uh, cells of the uh, alveoli and the uh, and the parabronchi. So, so uh, you know, uh, there's 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 lots of examples where it seems that homeostasis is at the heart of this, and where this this uh, th this idea that these uh, agents are uh, sensing a particular aspect of the environment and then modifying the environment to uh, to bring those who are within a certain narrow band of values, you know, I, I think the examples are abundant enough to where, again, I think we can start asking some really pointed and fundamental questions about what's driving what. Mm -hmm.
what's very exciting to me, and maybe this is from you know just being a, a big fan of Rosemary and Peter Grant we had on the show a little while ago, you know the classic example of, of Bill Size evolution in the Galapagos. I, I'm I'm asking about an example, and maybe if the data aren't there yet, a system where you could really tinker with the cognitive abilities of whatever systems you wanted to work on within a population and really trying to marry the, the your ideas with the, the more traditional, you know, uh, modern synthesis ways of, of thinking about things. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, maybe mm-hmm. there aren't examples like that, mm-hmm. but, but where I get the impression that a lot of people might get tripped up about the, the portrayal of homeostasis, the emphasis that you're, you're putting, is something like the, what are we going to measure? What are we going to do about it? And um, maybe we should say a little bit about intentionality as it arises from from cognition, but but for both of these things, the empiricists, wh- what do we measure? Well, how, how yeah. do we how do we test these ideas and interlink yeah. uh, different yeah. ways of thinking? Well, as you know, it's a it's it's experimentally very difficult, and uh, you know you have to have uh, uh, a willingness to undertake the challenge of doing that experimentally, and and. And uh, you know, I uh, I have worked with some people who have uh, who have been exploring the idea of doing cognitive interventions in systems. So, for example, I, I just wrapped up a a, a a research project with some colleagues who work on robotics, and uh, you know, one of the things that they have been exploring is is basically taking living systems and and coming in with a set of tiny robots that can actually you know modify the cognitive environment uh, in ways independently and 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 uh, you know you know that 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 area is very much in its uh, infancy uh, uh, of course there's a lot of uh, um, experimental ingenuity there you know one of the most uh, uh, interesting that, uh, that that I saw in recent years was uh, and trying to understand how spider webs, for example, act as information uh, media to spiders. You know, I've seen uh, instances where people have put uh, tiny magnets on the backs of the spiders and introduced an oscillating magnetic field that feeds into the feeds into the spider's uh, own uh, own uh, uh, sensory system. What's going on? You know, but uh, that's been mostly uh, geared towards uh, you know the, trying to understand how an insect landing in a spider web, for example example, conveys information to a spider that, oh, there's something caught in my web, you know. Um, so uh, I think there's room for lots of experimental ingenuity there. I think the ingenuity is there. I've seen it done in some fascinating ways in other contexts. Uh, uh, but, you know, we first have to ask, be prepared to ask the question, you know, what is it that's driving what? And, and uh, you know, as, I, as, I've, as I've said, I think that we are at the point now where we can start asking some of these fundamental questions about what's driving what. And, and uh, you know the prevailing view, as as we've uh, seen, as we've discussed many times here, for example, is that is that uh, the property follows from the mechanism, and maybe it's the other way around. I, I want to raise a, a different kind of issue or objection to this idea of of cognition, and, and I think this this relates to intentionality too, which we'll get to. Um, but and, and and I think so. So Marty asked a very practical question about uh, you know how, how does this affect the kinds of science and the kind of measurements that we do. Um, I guess my my point is more of a philosophical one about why we even need this idea of of cognition. And and I want to circle back to what you said about cells in the vascular system modifying their form 
based on local oxygen tensions or flow regimes and cells in the bones modifying their size and shape and their sort of basic biochemistry based on the stresses that they experience. I would describe that not as cognition, but simply as, you know, cells exhibiting adaptive plasticity in response to their local environments. So what what's wrong with that? And why do we need this extra layer of something called cognition? Well, okay, so um, the adaptive plasticity is an example of, 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 of the property following the mechanism. Am I describing that fairly, Art? The property following the mechanism. Maybe expand on that. What do you, what do you mean? Well, um, adaptive plasticity, for example, that's, that's following from the mechanisms. In other words, you don't need to bring in uh, aspects of cognitive function there. Is that, is that a fair well, st statement of, of your critique? Yeah, except that the cells are sensing what's going on around them. And I think you might call that cognition. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is why, why not just, why, why do we need this thing called cognition? Why isn't it just cells responding to their local environments? Isn't that what cognition is? Okay, then maybe we're on the same page. I, th I think okay. we're pretty well, much there, right? Then objection yeah. resolved. Okay, okay, perfect. Okay, fine. Why let's, wouldn't you have cognition? Then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just, I, I guess, philosophically, I'm uncomfortable with that because it, it invokes, uh, you know, again, a kind of mysticism in the process that seems unnecessary mm -hmm. and, and distracting. Okay, so uh, again, I'll put the question back to you. Are you entirely <laughs> mysticism free in that uh, in that approach? I'm mysticism free in the sense that I, you know, am a firm believer in the physical and chemical world as it exists, and the fact of biological phenomena emerging from, you know. Truly measurable physical and chemical phenomena. If that's he's going to get you again. You used the word. <laughs> You're dead in the water. <laughs> All right, fine. Well, let me. I I won't spring any trap on you, but let me say that 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 I too am a firm believer in the in life exists in a physical world and a and a chemical world. So, so there's no daylight between you and I on that score, Art. And 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 so, you know the 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 um, the. The thing that, that I'm asking, and I keep coming back to this, you know, what is driving what, you know? And I'd like to get away, actually, from the entire word mysticism. You know, I, I you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier. Right. I'll, the, I'll the, strike the, it out of my, my future uh, questions. Well, well so. you know, <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make is that, is that, you know, when you talk about the vitalist idea, the tendency is to invoke quasi-mystical types of uh, phenomena there. And, and, uh, and that's uh, been one of the uh, main, um, uh, main uh, what's the word I want, uh, uh, main things that has been used to discredit the vitalist idea and to, and to reinforce uh, what most of modern biology is, which foc is focused entirely on mechanism and, and, uh, and, and material explanations for, for, for life. And, and that's fair enough. You know, it's been a very successful philosophy. I take nothing away from that. But, you know, is it really the whole philosophy? I'm not entirely sure, you know. And, and, and this is why uh, I think the example of, of Claude Bernard and homeostasis is so fascinating. You know, it, you know his his motivation in 
discovering or uncovering or uh, maybe articulating that philosophy um, was entirely different from from the way we think about it today. And and even though he thought that, you know, he was a very credible experimentalist. He was also firmly embedded in in understanding the mechanisms that were involved. The perspective was just that his perspective was backwards from what ours is today. And and you know, we've 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 had a very, very successful run as biologists, I think, uh, with the perspective that's the property follows mechanism. You know, it's been a spectacular century for biology. But we're getting to the point now where, well, maybe we need to start turning the rock upside down a little bit and looking at it in a different way. And that's my point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um let's I True. I'd really like to summarize this in a way that, you know, get, gets all of these complex ideas, gets us all, everybody that's listening in, in the same brain space. And I'm going to try this, but it might totally backfire because I think visuals might be necessary for this argument. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but in your, in your book, I'm oh, sorry, I think it was in your paper in 2016, but it was, I believe, also in the book, um, this, this cartoon of a sort of the standing thermodynamic wave. Mm-hmm. And and really, the the arguments that the concept of, of entropy and how that plays in here is is really what drives it all home to me, and, and I think you know makes me receptive to it in general. So do you want to do you want to sort of try to portray in words um, <laughs> that image, uh, mm-hmm. if, if such a thing is possible, and and especially maybe touch on this concept that we've been dancing around but haven't done yet, um, intentionality. How how might thinking about intentionality help us make sense of? Mm-hmm sort of life riding this the edge of this thermodynamic wave the metaphor of the standing thermodynamic wave was was uh, 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 actually inspired by uh, by the question I was asking myself which is at the time I was writing this this book you know what's going on around me you know how how is it that uh, you know what what's what's actually happening in the outside world there and of course we look around with our with our eyes and our ears and uh, you know we see the plants and the flowers and the birds and uh, <clears throat> the cats uh, trying to catch the birds and uh, these kinds of things you know so so it's it's a conception of the environment that is very much um, driven by our cognitive interpretations of it. Namely, we have species, we have organisms, we have individuals, we have all those kinds of things uh, going on there. But if you try to reconcile this with the thermodynamics of what's going on, then you come up with a little bit of a different picture. And, and, uh, and you know, I was, I, was, I was trying to frame this in a way similar to how uh, and I'm not making any comparisons of myself with Einstein, but 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 how Einstein <laughs> thought about you know what it would be like to ride a photon you know at, at light speed you know that 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 that, that kind of thing. So I tried to imagine myself uh, uh, out there looking at life as a thermodynamic phenomenon, and 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 what you have, of course, is you have sunlight coming in uh, that uh, that is intercepted by plants to generate uh, uh, an amazing. Uh, uh, amount of order, you know, namely, of course, synthesizing glucose, which constructs the interface. You know, you get the whole idea, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that and that what happens there is you have this ongoing uh, set of transactions of this of the energy stored in that in that 
initial capture of order. So, so that's where the standing wave comes in. So you 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 have a garden that seems to persist in time and it persists in shape and and form and all that sort of stuff with time. And that's really kind of a standing wave, right? You have energy flowing in continuously. You have energy being used continuously to create order. You have a continual degradation of that order to, to uh, disorder and heat. And, mm-hmm. and everything that's happening with time through there is, 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 is captured in this metaphor of a standing wave. You have an initial capture of energy to produce order, and then from there it's a continual cascade downwards. But the wave is standing because you're feeding in order-producing work as quickly as you are generating disorder. And so that's, that's where the whole issue of, of uh, persistence uh, starts to come in. Um, and, and then the question becomes, well, you know, what's happening at the crest of that wave? Because that's where the real action is when we talk about life is happening. It's at that crest. And, 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 uh, and, and, and there you, you can then get into a metaphor of basically an ecosystem as the kind of shape of that, of that cresting wave of, of orderliness. And, and, uh, uh, and then, you know, well, what's shaping the shape of that crest? And that's where niche construction starts to come in. And, and I've gotten in trouble with a lot of my colleagues there because they, they object to this metaphor because it seems to detract from the, uh, from the core concept of the species, you know, well, you know, where's the species in all this, you know, where are the individual organisms and so forth? And they're in there, but again, we come back to the question, you know, what is it that's actually doing the shaping? Is it the crest of the wave that's doing the shaping or are the organisms themselves uh, doing the shaping? And if it's the latter, what is it that's, that's uh, governing how they shape it? And again, uh, to me, what comes back to this is that, you know, these things are all seeking to persist through time, despite all the turbulence uh, in the environment that's going on around them. And that's where niche construction mm-hmm. comes in. And that's where homeostasis mm-hmm. comes in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how would you fit, where do you want to put the word intentionality there? Just to, it's been a central part of, of how you've represented your ideas. How, how, how does that fit in this portrayal? Well, intentionality is one of these uncomfortable subjects that uh, that uh, you, you know causes a lot of uh, heartburn for people. So, so one of the things that I uh, tried to develop, uh, started developing it in in the Tinker as accomplice, uh, and then developed a bit further in Purpose and Desire, is that what actually is it that we mean by intentionality you know is there a way to frame that in in a manner that uh, avoids some of the some of the uh, uh, mystical to use that word that's come up a couple times mystical tra- <laughs> mi- mystical traps at least that, it wasn't me this time <laughs> <laughs> well you know the, 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 these are traps you know and 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 it's a legitimate question to ask you know are you just invoking spooks here or or ghosts in the machine or 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 things like this and so um, one of the things that I think has to be done if we're going to be asking these fundamental questions is to have have a sound conception of what intentionality is, and it's tied into cognition very intimately. So, so what is it that we do when we 
have an intention, you know, uh, well, we, there's a conscious part of it, definitely kind of want to stay away from that a little mm-hmm. bit, but, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, th- this intentionality can be framed in a way that links the cognitive interpretation of the environment with the connection to the engines, if you will, that can modify the environment. And so uh, when you look at uh, uh, the burrows of, uh, the tuned burrows of mole crickets, for example, you know, the, these, these, uh, these, these, these creatures build a burrow. It ends up in the shape of an exponential horn. This helps project the, the, uh, the, the sound of the call uh, much further than it would otherwise. And if you look at what's happening during the construction of that burrow, the, the, the cricket burrows a little bit, emits a chirp, listens to it, and if it's not quite right, it continues to modify its burrow until it gets the chirp that it wants. Again, I'm putting up scare quotes here, that it wants, yeah, right. And, 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 that's, and that's kind of an intentionality, isn't it? And, and, so, and so if we want to try to develop a concept of what intentionality is that's, that, that can be kept independent from the kind of mysticism uh, that that tends to trip this up, then, to me, the simplest definition is 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 coupling modification of the environment with the cognitive interpretation of the environment, and 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 uh, that that to me is an intentional process. That's where intentionality fits in, mm-hmm. and so I'm trying to get away from these kinds of mystical traps. Yeah. I think so. No, Art, I know you want to sort of talk about the evolutionary implications, and we haven't even used the, one of my favorite terms, um, memory tokens. But, but Scott, let me get a half question, half uh, comment um, in right here at the end. I think about what about this concept that really gets me excited is to, to go back to standard evolutionary theory criticism where we started the conversation. Um, the origin of life is a big missing component of, of standard evolutionary theory. We're not able to do that. And here, to think about homeostasis as one of the initial conditions of life. Um, it, it's just really exciting. We had Sarah Walker on more than a year ago now, and she's made a big point about digital versus analog information and, and what it's what their roles are in life. And pe- people can listen to that episode if they care to hear about it. But um, Art, I think this, this sort of worrying about mysticism, I, I, I get your point, but at the same time, the value that this mindset has for understanding, thinking about the origins of life, is super compelling for me. But the, the question part of my now long soapbox, Scott, is um, do you think at any point in evolutionary history, the the sort of, how do I say this, the role of homeostasis, what was necessary at the initial inception of, of what was life, starts to get subsumed such that the original conditions change over? Like, the, ha, has life bringing in or sort of take, taking in or accounting for all of its entropy with various different barriers ultimately gotten to the point where the original conditions aren't so important anymore. The whole metaphor of the standing thermodynamic wave was actually part of an exploration of that very question, you know, what's the origin of life? Uh, what is it that 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 drives it? And uh, uh, to answer your question directly, you know, if you look at the history of theories of the origin of life, uh, you know, there have been some ingenious explorations of, of, uh, of, of uh, what happens in what I call the kind of warm little pond uh, uh, metaphor that, uh, that, that, that Darwin evoked uh, uh, himself, you know, that, that if we're going to find 
uh, clues to the origin of life, we have to look at the origins of complex metabolism, the origins of hereditary memory, and uh, those kinds of things. And, and uh, of course, the, the conundrum that origin of life research has faced is that, is that uh, you know, to get to those ingenious mechanisms, to drag them across the the, the starting line, so to speak, uh, um, none of them have ever really got to that point. And and uh, uh, to my mind, one of the most uh, one of the theories that has approached it most closely has been uh, uh, Alexander Karen Smith's ideas of of uh, of, um, of clay organisms. Uh, being the foundation for this, and and uh, uh, just to put in a uh, a plug for him, you know, to 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 me, that's that's that theory comes closest to understanding the origin of life, and he did so because he liberated himself from the standard idea that uh, you know you have to have. Uh, uh, you know, genes present. Is it genes first, or is it metabolism first, or those kinds of things? And uh, you know, by by framing uh, Darwinian principles in the way that he did, you know, I thought it was uh, an area of uh, tremendous insight. But again, are we are we quite there? And uh, and from that approach, from the kind of bottom up, uh, warm little pond uh, approach that that has been so so prevalent in this. And and again, taking nothing away from the ingenious work that's been done there, you know, but uh, uh, I still think we don't have a comprehensive theory for the origin of life yet. All right. And, and so um, I, I had the privilege of spending about six weeks uh, with Addie Pross, who's been doing some very interesting uh, 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 explorations of the origin of life. You know, uh, uh, Addie is a uh, is a is a biochemist, uh, and he titles his uh, his his book uh, "What Is Life." He subtitles it as uh, "How Chemistry Became Biology," and uh, and we had a lot of back and forth ab uh, uh, about this. You know, and, and of course, he very much takes the uh, takes the uh, bottom up approach, the mechanistic approach to this, and uh, you know makes them very very compelling arguments, but uh, we had a lot of back and forth about that, and uh, we finally ended up uh, agreeing that, okay, well, all these uh, all these things are important, but what's actually going to drag life, this chemistry, across the starting line? And, and, uh, and we decided that it had to be some origin of homeostasis that was really the the nub of of the origin of life and and uh, and of course then we get into the whole issues of intentionality and cognition yeah. and things like this you know <laughs> right, right. And, and, and it's a you know i have no answers i have no answers but i'm just trying to frame the question in this way So I wanted to ask another question that follows up uh, in, in sort of the style that that I think appeals to you a lot, which is to think about uh, directions of causal arrows and you know where what what's driving what. Um, and and you talk some in the book about um, the role of of genes and whether they're driving evolution or whether they're following along from from some other process and. You invoke also the the idea of extended organisms and genes as a form of memory token. 
and the idea that there are many other kinds of memories besides genes. So, so what if we had to kind of come full circle in this conversation? What what role do genes play in evolution? I uh, I coined the term memory token to try to put the whole issue of of, of the gene and uh, DNA into a little bit of a different perspective and 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 by memory token I mean that that that's something that can be used to evoke a process of memory and so I you know I think that memory is very much of a process rather than a thing and uh, of course and again this is where my physiology hat uh, uh, starts to be important because you know DNA itself is a molecule but uh, okay despite all of its interesting complexity it only becomes interesting when you look at what DNA or how DNA is embedded in in the function and uh, how it uh, determines function or maybe influences function and I think uh, portraying DNA as a memory token uh, uh, helps put it into its proper, uh, what I think is its proper perspective as one form of memory that uh, is that carries uh, adaptation, for example, into the future. And and, and so that's 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 where I I I think the memory token idea starts to come in. Now the emerging picture of what DNA does in there, especially with the discovery, uh, very exciting discoveries in, in my view of how function can actually feed back into the interpretation of DNA sequence code into function. You know, we've basically closed the loop that was broken by the central dogma of molecular biology back in the 19, I forget when Francis Crick actually said this, whether it was early 1960s or late 1950s, you know, you, we've, we've, we've seen the cartoon of the central dogma as there being a one-way flow of information from DNA to RNA to function, basically protein synthesis and, and, uh, and so forth. And, and that fit in very well with the kind of mutationist uh, notion of gene selectionism in, in, uh, that has prevailed in the modern synthesis, for example. And the fact that there are these feedbacks of function onto, onto this sequence code and its interpretation, to me, opens up a whole universe of different ways that we can conceive of the gene and and start asking ourselves a radical question, for example, whether genes actually are uh, a thing or whether they're a metaphor past their cell by date, you know. And and so, and so that's that I think is how I would frame the issue. But wouldn't wouldn't a skeptic say like? Of course, genes are a thing. We we sequence them all the time. We we know their products are permeating cells and having phenotypic effects. So, what do you mean? Skeptics do say that all the time. In <laughs> fact, and and and, uh, and and so that's not far off the mark. But uh, you know, um, is the gene only a specifier, and uh, or is it a participant in a process that's that's. Uh, that, that, that not only specifies the process, but that the process can, can feed back and actually specify 
a gene. And, uh, you know, there are mm -hmm. certainly, uh, you know, uh, identifiable sequences of DNA that produce certain effects. And of course, you know, the example I always like to use is the cystic fibrosis gene. You know, there's one, there's a point mutation there and it, uh, it specifies a very clear departure of function, which feeds back into all kinds of devastating consequences for the people who are, mm -hmm. who are uh, mm -hmm. sufferers from that uh, disease. So, so there's no doubt that genes exist. I'm not saying, or, or let, me, let me backtrack on that. There's no doubt that there are sequences of DNA that are very powerful specifiers of function. But then you have vast stretches of DNA that we have no idea what they do. And, uh, and you know, they're, they're this is where the whole conception of junk DNA comes in, which is something that's like the fingernails on the chalkboard to me when people say that, you know, do we have a good explanation for what, what junk DNA does? Uh, do we know what these non-coding, uh, supposedly non-coding areas of, of, of a DNA uh, 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 molecule does? And, uh, and of course, you build onto this the whole other layer of complexity with the structure of the genome and the nucleosomes and how those are unwrapped and methylation. And, you know, it, there's, there, there's this whole universe of, of understanding of how DNA, uh, what well, the role sure. that DNA plays in this, that's that's that, that's expanding, you know, at light speed. Uh, I think, and I think we're going to end up coming, coming to a more um, process-oriented uh, understanding of what DNA is, rather than yeah, the kind I, of I object, totally agree with that. object conception of the gene that is the that that is the origin of that of that whole concept. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Yeah. Let, let, let me ask also about this this uh, concept of memory tokens. So you know, I understand that in the concept in the context of genes, right? They're they're tokens of of past adaptation, if you will. Um, but if, but if we had to broaden this idea and talk about what are memory tokens altogether, is, is that anything that's projected from the past into the future? So you know, arrangements of my cells. Uh, you know, neural patterns in my, my brain, uh, for other organisms, say termites, uh, ecological inheritance of, of termite mounds. Th those are all memory tokens, right? I would say yes. Okay. And, and, and so the idea is that all of these things are sort of moving forward and diversifying in, into the future and are subject to selection across all of those, those levels. They're subject to selection, but let's be very careful about what we mean by selection. You know, I, 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 I think there's the, the, the standard interpretation of it, which is that you have a, a specified function and this is selected from generation to generation, you know, and that may indeed be the correct way to do it. But, but of course, uh, uh, selection has always been uh, prone to the criticism of what's doing the selecting. You know, that's been one of the, one of the, uh, yeah. the uh, uh, brickbats that's always been thrown at the Darwinian idea, which is that, okay, you say natural selection, but, you know, that doesn't really tell you what's doing the selection. Now, I would say that, yes, there is selection going on, but when you start uh, uh, building... Uh, this con this conception of the extended organism melded with niche construction theory and melded with this idea of homeostasis. There's selection going on, all right, but the thing doing the selecting is the organism itself, and there's an element of choice and intentionality involved in that, which which uh, uh, I think gives heartburn to most 
yeah, yeah, Garwis, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. So, well, Scott, would you go as far as Mary Jane West Everhart and others have to say that genes are followers most of the time? I don't know about most of the time. Yes, we don't have to I, put the specifics on there, but often. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah. I think so. And that's an example of the reversal of perspective that I think is very important to be asking. Absolutely. We sort of want to, to have you explain why some of the latter sections of latter sections of the book took the form that they did. And I think the one that stands out to me most is that the title of one of the chapters is The Hand of Whatever. And some other people have sort of picked on you for being funded by the Templeton Foundation and, and these other sorts of entities. I mean, wh where does this come from? And I guess just to be as blunt as possible, what are your perspectives on intelligent design? Well, uh, I, uh, I, I guess the first uh, uh, collision, I suppose, is the word to collision. use. Collision. Uh, <laughs> That's a good choice. <laughs> came after the the, uh, the the publication of my second book, The Tinker is Accomplice, mm -hmm. and and this was where I tried to get a handle on the whole concept of biological design and uh, and how homeostasis uh, uh, falls into that and and this came out uh, uh, a little less than a year after the whole blow up at the Dover School District mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. If you need a refresher, this was a case in Pennsylvania where a group of parents sued the local school board that had required the teaching of intelligent design. A judge ruled that it was unconstitutional for school district to teach intelligent design as an alternative to evolution because it promoted a religious viewpoint. And um, I was uh, sort of dragged into this. You know, we had uh, you know people who would refuse to review the book. I rather pointed uh, uh, comments about me personally, and also the nature of the book uh, uh, as a consequence of that. And and uh, despite I think the third sentence in that book being "This is not about intelligent design theory," <laughs> I, I, I I ended up being uh, being branded as a kind of a shill for the Discovery Institute. And and and. Uh, and so, um, uh, as a consequence of that, uh, uh, some of the intelligent design people, notably Steve Meyer, uh, reached out to me and said, well, we're having this conference, why don't you come down? And so uh, I thought, well, you know, I might as well get to know these guys. And, uh, and uh, without endorsing intelligent design theory, that's, uh, th that experience opened up to me an interesting dimension to the whole debate about evolution in biology. Uh, at this conference, there was not only, uh, you know, the standard intelligent design uh, uh, advocates there, but also a whole range of other people, including people like Stuart Kaufman, for example, who has, uh, you know, as we, we were speaking about the origin of life earlier, you know, he has some fascinating ideas about the origin of metabolism. And, and so forth. So, so it, it was intellectually at a very high level, and and if nothing else, I came away with um, with uh, a feeling of what uh, Thomas Nagel has uh, since uh, articulated, which is that you know we, we need to not treat uh, this whole uh, idea as demon spawn, which is which is uh, you know I, I I think an unfortunate reaction. Uh, uh, to it, but you know, let's engage the ideas you know, intellectually. Let's do that, and and so, and so, um, 
one of the things that uh, one of the motivations behind writing the book Purpose and Desire was to do just that, you know, and 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 so, and so, uh, you know, when I when I uh, um, when I speak to these people, you know, I, I I portray myself as a friendly critic, but a critic nonetheless, and and so, and so from there, you know, you 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 have to ask, uh, well, you know, what is it in this whole doctrine of intelligent design theory that 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 might have some validity that we can work with, all right, and and so um, uh, that's 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 part of the, the motivation, and and there's there's a public motivation behind this as well. This is one of the reasons why I went to the commercial press for the pub publication of Purpose and Desire because I think this is a conversation that we need urgently to have in our society. You know, right right now it's a very very polarized uh, kind of kind of conversation and and uh, uh, it's it's polarized in part because no one wants to engage the other side sure, on sure. an intellectual level. Sure. You know, and so and so. Um, when I talk about intelligent design theory, I I take pains to distinguish between the critique and the conclusions that they draw. You know, and if you look at the critique, uh, uh, one of the most interesting uh, experiences to me that I had was I went through and I was reading one of Steve Meyer's books, and then I was reading one of Stuart Kaufman's uh, books, who's also a critic of the modern Darwinian idea. And almost point for point, their critiques were identical. You know, and so, and so maybe there's a valid critique there. Where I depart from them is that, uh, you know, they 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 draw a particular conclusion, or rather, I should say, they kind of leave a conclusion uh, uh, unstated, inviting everyone to draw what they are arguing is the correct conclusion, which is uh, basically a a, um, a, a rewarmed argument from design. Uh, uh, philosophy, you know, they're, 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 they, they, they are coming into this from a very uh, platonic idea with the, uh, you know, the platonic idea of the demiurge, which of course leads into the, into the, into the uh, justification of the Christian conception of God that we saw throughout m medieval history. And so that's where they are going. You know, so I describe them really as Platonists uh, bringing this and, uh, you know, we can have lots of conversations about the role of Platonism. Uh, in biology, including the conception of the species, mm -hmm. we probably don't want to yeah, get into that so here. But uh, <laughs> you know, but 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 it's a philosophical issue, mm -hmm. and, and 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 you know. There is another way of looking at this, and uh, of course, uh, we all know that Aristotle, you know, has had a very different conception of of uh, things from uh, Plato. You know, he there were some similarities, but of course, where Plato puts, uh, you know, the the striving of living things uh, out there in the ether somewhere in some disembodied ideal, Aristotle was very much steeped in 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 the kind of internal motivations that can produce uh, that can produce. Uh, uh, the structure and form and reproduction of animals and uh, these kinds of things and, and so, you know, if I was to describe myself as anything, it's actually is an Aristotelian kind of approach to this. You know, I, I think there is uh, intelligence and cognition and purposefulness at work. That's the conclusion that I've come to, but it's not, you know, some disembodied ideal. It doesn't in any way lead to a conception of the Christian God. It actually is a return to the kind of Aristotelian conception of inter 
internal uh, mechanisms that help produce form and function right. and those kinds of okay. things. And, and, and so that's the, 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 that I would regard as the, as the principal uh, uh, distinction. Okay. So the, um, the, something that you said a few minutes ago, I just wanted to ask in a pointed way. Um, I, I understand the sort of perspective of their skepticism you know, you you have your skepticism about Darwin, original Darwinian thinking, and and modern synthesis, and all those that good stuff, and then folks from the Discovery Institute and otherwise they do as well. But you mentioned that something on the order of intelligent design theory and the types of ideas that it can bring. So, what are the, the what are the sorts of things that aren't of the form that that you, you were just talking about? What are the specific sort of more scientific perspectives that complement the arguments that you're trying to make? Uh, that I'm trying to yeah, make. Yeah, uh, I mean the, 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 the yeah. Stuart Kopmans and, yeah. and the others that you refer to. Sure. That are offering yeah. to the conversation. Yeah. Uh, I would say that what I'm uh, what I have tried to do is to is to uh, a frame what I consider to be a valid critique of the standard evolutionary theory idea in a way that that we as scientists, specifically as physiological scientists, can, um, can um, let's see, what's the word I want? That we as... That, that we as scientists can bring a properly scientific perspective uh, to it, you know. And, and so uh, if you look at the writings of some of the intelligent design uh, critics of Darwinism, and I, I point to Steve Meyer as probably the most articulate uh, and intelligent uh, 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 critic of, of, of uh, modern Darwinism. You know, they, 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 they are basing their, critic, their critique on interesting properly scientific ideas you know and so that's that's one of the reasons why they have such resonance amongst the you know amongst the public and uh, and in, in these debates about uh, how we should properly teach uh, evolution in schools and uh, these these kinds of things but again to make the distinction between the critique and the solution, uh, I think there's room for a scientific exploration of those critiques that could, for example, incorporate uh, things that I think are absolutely obvious and fundamental about life, which is that life behaves purposefully. Mm -hmm. uh, life behaves intentionally. Mm -hmm. uh, those words have become very uncomfortable uh, words for us to use right now, but uh, uh, there, there's, a, there's an unfortunate tendency to, to, uh, to alienate the study of evolution from the phenomenon of life itself. And, and, and so I see, I see this physiological approach and trying to come up with a sound understanding of what intentionality and cognitions and uh, purposefulness uh, is uh, can do a lot to help us understand evolution sure, sure. better yeah. than we do. And now. I'm a total, totally in agreement there. I think that the difference is, I didn't hear you say anything about the, the other folks that are part of this conversation that are quite good with the criticism, but offering the new path forward that's filling the void of what was critiqued. That's that's a big difference. Well, I, I don't know Meyer's work, but I'm just saying it's it's one thing to criticize where the flaws are, and I think I would I would be in agreement without reading the material. I expect I would be in agreement based on the conversation we've had and, and your books that I've read. But but I, I tell my graduate students this all the time. It's to be expected in science that you tear down everyone else's edifices because it's how we make progress. But if you can't offer an alternative, you're sort of just being mean. I mean, it, you're only doing one part of what's expected of you as a scientist. 
I am absolutely yeah, in agreement okay, with that, okay. and, and we and and we've corresponded with that, and and of course that's uh, that's uh, one of the motivations behind writing those books, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which which was was to try to lay out an alternative, a constructive alternative mm-hmm. to or to to the critique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to jump in also with a, a question and comment about in, intelligent design. So, you know, you have these sort of allusions at the end of the book to in, intelligent design. And I think, you know, that causes a lot of heartburn among people because, um, you know, t- typically the way people are using the phrase intelligent design is to invoke the hand of God as the, as the designer. And, you know, we've just spent uh, almost two hours <laughs> Good stuff. talking, talking about, about great uh, stuff. <laughs> ho- homeostasis and cognition and intentionality. And so, is that is that what you mean when you say that's the thing that's that's doing the intelligent design, or are you invoking the hand of God? And and you know, maybe one more way to to ask this is in the context of of Jerry Coyne's critique of your book. Um, he wrote this rather scathing uh, online review and suggested that you know your your conception of homeostasis the homeostasis was a code word for God essentially. So where where do you stand in all of that? Um, well, let's deal with the uh, with with the intelligent uh, design issue first, and uh, and again we come back to the distinction between the critic critique and the solution. The critique has valid aspects. I'm not, you know, I, I'm 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 not going to deny that uh, the, there is some validity to the critique, and in part, the validity comes from other people who are, you know, mainstream. Uh, if very innovative thinkers, scientific thinkers, uh, it, it, the critique parallels that, and so and so, the solution really is different from the critique. Now, now when I uh, use that title in the book, uh, the hand of whatever, you know, I wasn't being evasive about uh, you know whatever being code for code for the Platonic God. You know, I was trying to say that well, you know, there's there's a hand there that's somewhere, and and uh, and the, the 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 hand, if you will, can be something that is. That 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 emerges from the fundamental property of life, which I argue is homeostasis, and 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 uh, you know you know you 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 can build around that. I, I think a, a scientific uh, alternative to the or answer to the critique, uh, Marty. Getting back to your to your uh, uh, comment about uh, you know it's easy to tear down, but not so easy to build up, and and so and so that's. Um, that's the motivation uh, there. Now, with respect to Jerry Coyne, that's an that's a that's an interesting one because, uh, as you said, he wrote a rather scathing uh, uh, commentary on uh, the book, and uh, me personally, actually, uh, uh, actually, without ever having read the book, and and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and 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 he as much as admitted it, so he was literally judging a book by its cover, and 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 without bothering to Although engage. Although he, he did subsequently read the book, though. Well, right? I and, called and him and out on that, and uh, yeah. and he yeah. rather. Uh, uh, 
uh, churlishly uh, uh, read the book, but he, but 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 he mm-hmm. was obviously uh, you know he'd made up his mind, and and so, and so that's the whole Jerry coin, and I think that's pretty much where it stopped. You know, he he uh, he he judged a book by its cover. I called him out on it, and uh, you know he he then read the book, but I think he missed the point of the book he, because he didn't bother to engage it really, and. Uh, and so that's uh, that's that's my that's my take on that. Now, part of the latter, part of the epilogue of the book, for example, just to introduce, uh, uh, maybe take the conversation in this direction. You know, I, I I did mention that our public understanding of evolution right now is very very polarized, and and uh, and it, it's 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 not constructive. I think there are important questions that we have to be asking about. How our understanding of evolution uh, uh, helps us understand broader ideas, like what's our place in the universe, what's our role, uh, you know, these kinds of things. Where do we come from? And we can't have a, a a very constructive argument about this right now because the debate is so polarized. And in part, uh, Jerry Coyne illustrates this in 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 a very uh, uh, a very pointed way. You know, he has his ideas. He's going to pass judgment on whatever comes at him uh, based on those ideas but is not willing to step out of that uh, of that of that bubble and i have to say it happens on the other side as well you know it happens with the intelligent design controversy it happens with the whole creationism controversy uh, and so you have this very very polarized uh, public aspect of what evolution is and 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 i think there's a middle way i think the controversy could move forward uh, or be resolved and move forward in a constructive way if we thought about all of this differently and if people would come out of their bubbles well i wanted to i wanted i want to sort of end on a on a sign on a on a obviously scientific note if we if we can and and ask you scott where do you think the role of homeostasis will be in our research and thinking about biology and or maybe specifically evolutionary biology in the next 10 years or so my hope is that uh that uh people will start shifting their perspective a bit when they are formulating research questions. We touched on this briefly earlier in our conversation, you know, what what are the experimental or 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 other kinds of tests that we could we could bring to bear on this question and uh uh, I think there are some elements of this out there. We spoke about the whole issue of robotic intervention into uh, into a, you know a system of information flow or what have you. And so my hope is that you know we would turn the perspective around. And uh, you know my I'm I'm uh, optimistic about that because uh, as you know we scientists we like to turn over rocks and uh, and uh, you know uh, ex- you know explode conventional wisdom and those kind of things. You know that's the most exciting thing about what we do and so and so my hope is that 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 that, that will uh, continue for for evolution um, I hope that we can actually have uh, start having a positive public conversation about about what drives evolution and uh, and uh, and uh, you know the 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 theory behind it uh, uh, the philosophical foundations of it because of course as you know this is a big part of the con- public controversy over it uh, uh, in a way that we can you know we can just move forward to this uh, you know I I I would love to see um, uh, evolution 
being part of the school curriculum in a way that is not so emotive and uh, and uh, uh, controversial, you know, because there's fascinating things in there, and uh, I don't think we're having those conversations right now. We ended up talking to Scott for more than two hours. This was the longest Big Biology episode we've ever produced, and we did that on purpose. We wanted to give ourselves time to understand his ideas about homeostasis and intentionality, and also to push back on areas where we didn't see eye to eye. Clearly, evolution doesn't happen because organisms want it to. But Scott argues that intentionality does have a role in evolution. If biologists don't include intentionality, homeostasis, agency, and the like in our research because they feel like old-school vitalism, we could miss important understanding for how life works. We hope that our interview with Scott sparks some productive conversations. We would love to hear what you think about his ideas. How do you think intentionality fits into evolution? If you think Scott is way off base, then how would you respond to his ideas? We just set up a new system for you to send us your opinions as voice memos. You can either click the link in the show description for the episode to send us a message, or you can go to anchor.fm slash bigbiology and click on the message link for the episode. We'll talk over what you have to say, and we might even include your voice on the show. You can also join the conversation on social media. Tweet at us and tell us what you think about this episode. Our Twitter handle is at big underscore biology. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember that you can support the show by making a recurring donation on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio. Or you can make a one-time donation on our website, www.bigbiology.org. Please help us out. Without your support, we can't produce the shows you love. And even if you can't spare a few dollars, tell your friends about us on Twitter or other social media. Thanks to Matt Boyce for producing this episode. Mike Levine runs our social media channels and produces the student spotlights. Dana Baxter helps with background research, and Steve Lane manages our website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear.